is Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime, Crime New, New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. I hope you are doing well, dear listener. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for joining us once again on this fine Thursday. Now we are approaching October, arguably the best month of the year. I have to say I agree. Yes. Because of my birthday? Because of your birthday and also a little fun thing that happens at the very end of the month called Halloween. I thought you were going to say menstruation. (laughs) That's a lot more fun than that. Great. Love it. I know. October is the best. The weather is fantastic. Foliage. You get the fall foliage. Mm -hmm. There's like a like a six day stretch Mm -hmm. in the beginning of October every year where there's like the peak foliage and it's the best. Right around Columbus Day, that's right. Oh, it's amazing, you guys. I know a lot of you listening probably live in New England, so you know what we're talking about, but my goodness, it is like nothing else I've ever seen. It always, I've lived in New England my whole life, 24 years in, and I'm still like, oh my god, take pictures of how beautiful these trees are. It doesn't get old. No. It does not get old. No. It's amazing. Um, And I drive a lot on the highway to get Mm -hmm. to work and come home. Oh, and I know you drive a lot of, like, back roads and stuff. Oh, my God. So beautiful. It's... The one thing I will say is a lot of people who aren't from New England will come up to see the foliage. Don't mind that. Tree peepers. Yeah. (laughs) When I'm driving, especially when I'm driving home from work after working all night, I do not want to be stuck behind a car of people going 10 under the speed limit. (laughs) Ooh. Oh, <laughs> looking at all the leaves, yes. I get a little belligerent. Hmm. Go up to North Conway. Oh, go so up to you know the scenic outlooks and all that. Kankamangus is yeah. a good spot. Go drive the Kankamangus. Go drive oh, the Kank. Beautiful. And, and let us know how the that kink. is. Don't be driving around back roads of where I need to be yeah. in a timely manner. Beep beep, motherfucker. I get a little irritated. No, I get it. But you know. I can appreciate the foliage Mm. going my usual 5 to 10 over the speed limit in whatever rush I'm in getting places. But yeah, it's fall foliage, New England. It's what we're known for. It's exactly. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And like you said, it never gets old. Mm -mm. Speaking of fall foliage, our case today um, (laughs) is a bit of a, not super personal, but it has some personal ties. Yeah. And also, again, with the segue, really spot on. Um, so as you can tell from our title of the episode, we are going to be talking about a man named David Kwiatkowski. And the reason why this is somewhat personal is because this man worked at Exeter Hospital with my dad, um, like directly almost, like they knew each other and, um, at the time my grandfather also worked at the hospital and, um still does they both do and then so exeter hospital and we've talked about it before as most of you know we just donated to um beyond the rainbow fund which is through exeter hospital and i've talked about before pretty much everyone in my family tree has worked at exeter hospital Mm -hmm. um i was born there and the room i was born in is now an office just like it's still in the birthing suite, but just a, now it's an office. And, you know, my, my grandfather is a valet there. He's been there 25 years this oh, year. Wow. Mm-hmm. My dad has been there about 24. My Aunt Kim has worked there. My Aunt Courtney worked there. I worked there for four and a half years in the kitchen um, in high school. I actually really enjoyed it. I met a lot of great people there. Um, it's It's pretty, it's all right. It's pretty all right. You know, every hospital has their their quirks and their qualms but you know it's a a good hospital um so this man we're going to be talking about today you guys maybe won't recognize his name but once we start talking about him i bet you'll recognize the story Mm -hmm. um so this it takes place in 2011 2012-ish for the exeter part and so my dad did know him my dad is a, a housekeeper at the hospital and he does a lot of um you know, I have a lot of respect for him because he does a lot of gross <laughs> cleanup and the nitty gritty. And um, David Kwiatkowski, he was a traveling medical technician. And so my dad and him ran into each other a lot. 
In fact, they played fantasy baseball together, <laughs> which I th- was like, that's a thing? Oh Great. First of all, I love baseball, so I was like, okay, where? how do I do that? But minus this guy. <laughs> um, so he knew him, and he said he was, you know, he was nice. He claims that he has, like, kind of shitty tattoos all over, and it just seemed, he seemed kind of, like, kind of weird, but nice enough, you know? Um, so... I just thought that was really interesting that it kind of all ties back to this one place where literally I was born and will probably die. It's pretty weird. Yeah. It's a really wild case, too. Guys, we're going to be throwing out so many dates mm-hmm. and and information. Try your best to follow along because it's so interesting. It's very information dense but it's a very important case to talk about because it happened so locally and it was a really huge case um you know we both work in the medical field Mm -hmm. drug diversion is a big thing that's talked about among healthcare professionals yeah we'll get into it um there's a lot of kind of moving parts but it's a really good case to talk about absolutely and like you said it's very prevalent um Drug addiction is a very sad, awful thing, and even with technology today and 10 years ago, things slip through the cracks a mm-hmm. little bit. So it's always worth talking about situations like this to improve safety in healthcare settings, whether it's in a hospital, home health, outpatient clinic, what have you. Um, there should be safety and regulation regarding medication, and um, and that includes something as simple as Tylenol, all the way to fentanyl, you know, like it's a very important subject. So, yeah, we thought this would be such an interesting case and we've had it on our list for a while. And I always felt like bonded isn't the right word because I'm not bonded to David Kwiatkowski, but I just feel like it's just I've walked the same halls and I've been in that area. Like it just, you know, oh, it blows my mind. And then I worked in the hospital at a time where this was after this had happened. So the safety regulations I was used to was uh, some of them were a result of what he did. Same with like what my dad deals with, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to talk about. And without further ado, today we will be covering David Kwiatkowski. Okay, let's jump into it. This nuts story. Katie, tell me about your sources. I have Oxygen, the U.S. Department of Justice, Seacoast Online, of course. Amazing. It has been Seacoast, New Hampshire, of course. It's going to be Seacoast Online. <laughs> Absolutely. CNN and WMUR. Great. I had CNN as well. The Baltimore Sun. Um, advisory.com, ktar.com, uscourts.gov, AP News, Mayo Clinic, um, CBS News, as well as Seacoast Online. Awesome. Okay, Katie, I want you to set the scene for us. It's spring summer of 2012. I can picture it now. We're going into eighth grade. Mm -hmm. The eyeliner. The fringe haircuts, the feathers that you could get put in your hair. Yeah. Gangnam Style was so popular. What a time to be alive. Oh my gosh. Great. Now that that, we set the scene for you guys, Katie. In May of 2012, three patients at Exeter Hospital in Exeter, New Hampshire, suddenly and out of the blue, Mm -hmm. test positive for hepatitis C. They had all previously had routine surgeries, and so now the hospital is scrambling. How the fuck did these patients suddenly test positive for hep C? Right. We did not have this in our record. All of the hospital employees had to be tested. Mm. In the process of testing all of their staff, another patient suddenly tests positive for hep C. Oof. Now they have to alert the Department of Health and Human Services. Right. Deputy State Epidemiologist Dr. Elizabeth Talbot, she was working on disease surveillance and control for the Department of Health and Human Services. She's a badass. I was going to say, you go, girl. She gets the report of all four cases of hep C in the patients. Mm -hmm. So she's doing a little research. She's going into the patient's charts. And not only did they all recently have pretty routine procedures, Mm -hmm. 
all four of them had had their procedures done in the cardiac catheterization lab. Yes, the cardiac cath lab. The cardiac cath lab. It's just, you know, in healthcare we cardiac abbreviate everything. Easy. But so we'll refer to it as that from now on. Yes. She also figured out that all of the positive samples from the four patients collected had the same genotype. Hmm. And this informed her that all four patients had been infected from the same individual. Interesting. It's the same type of hep C. Yeah. It all has the same kind of identifying genome. Yeah. So that leads her to believe, okay, it's one person right. that infected all of them. It's not a coincidence that suddenly there was four. So now they zero in on the cardiac cath lab. As they're kind of investigating, doing their thing, okay, what's going on in here? Mm -hmm. Let's look at all the patients that had procedures. While they're doing kind of an investigation, near the cath lab in one of the bathrooms, a staff member is going pee, doing his business, whatever. He finds a syringe with a blue label that says fentanyl. Oh, fentanyl. Fentanyl gets a bad rap out on the street as a street drug. Absolutely. It is very commonly used during lab procedures. Mm -hmm. It's Um, in epidurals. Epidurals, exactly. So it is so, so common. Um, Once it's regulated in a medical setting, it's really not super serious, but it's one of those that can be abused pretty easily. And it is very potent, and it can be deadly. Yeah. At the same time, staff members are also observing a specific medical technician, a.k.a. another abbreviation, a med tech, right. that had needle marks and abscesses on his arms. When he was confronted about this, and he was confronted several times, because during medical procedures where you have to be sterile, mm-hmm. some of the abscesses would open up and bleed through and become visible on his scrubs, and he had to change. That's so nasty. They're like, what's up with those abscesses? Why are you bleeding all over my sterile field? Yeah. He's like, oh, I have cancer, <laughs> and I need repeated injections. But his coworkers are also saying, hey, did you notice that guy seems a little off? Like his mm. eyes are kind of glassed over, and yeah. he was, quote, altered. Yeah. So they're not really believing his story. And now they find a used empty syringe that was from the cardiac cath lab in the bathroom labeled fentanyl. Yeah. Now they're starting to zero in on a specific person. Right. You guessed it. (laughs) David Kwiatkowski. The one and only. Now, before we touch on David Kwiatkowski, I figured maybe we could talk very little about what hepatitis C is. So it's a viral infection that is spread when blood that is contaminated with hepatitis C is spread, enters the bloodstream of an uninfected person. So you mentioned the genotypes, Katie, of the um, infection. So there are actually seven distinct genotypes with roughly 67 subtypes of the genotypes. So there's a lot of like variations you could have. Mm -hmm. That being said, if one person has a specific type and then suddenly people are getting infected with the same strain, kind of adds up mm-hmm. for sure. Um, so hepatitis C symptoms sometimes can be hidden for years. Um, there's like a latent phase and then they kind of come on pretty full force. It's actually often referred to as a silent infection. So common symptoms include bleeding and bruising super easily, jaundice, which is yellowing of the skin, weight loss, um, fluid buildup in the abdomen, which is known as ascites, and then mental confusion. Mm -hmm. Um, That happens a lot with liver issues. So some complications that come from contracting hepatitis C, besides, of course, that those symptoms um, include cirrhosis, which is scarring of the liver. That happens a lot with alcoholism Mm -hmm. and um, liver cancer as well as liver failure, which are two very unfortunate, awful things. So you don't want it. Ultimately, it can be cured. You can have a negative viral load eventually. Um, It's often passed by IV drug users, but you can eventually not be cured so much, but treated where your symptoms are under control. Um, And you have, like I said, a negative viral load. So in short, 
that is your quick discussion on hepatitis C. Here forth known as hep C. Yes. Um, we really like to abbreviate. Hey, we're running around, you know, we're busy, save some time. Honestly, lots of lots of letters being thrown out there. So that being said, now that we all know what hepatitis C is, we can move on and talk about this piece of shit. Mm-hmm. KB, you did a great job setting the scene for us. Thank you. I did not know about the abscess part. Oh, yeah. That's disgusting. Oh, yeah. Imagine you are a patient laying open. Well, in the cardiac cath lab, there would be tubes going yes. into you. Yeah. And it's right into your bloodstream. Right into your blood, right to your heart. Even. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. And imagine one of the medical technicians, MedTech, a.k.a., <laughs> is standing in the corner bleeding, oozing. I don't want that near me. I don't want that in the room with me. I no. go out in the hallway. Not in my sterile field. <laughs> Not in my sterile field. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Because once the sterile field is broken, even a little, I see, you know, sometimes we, go, like as a nurse, go down to the C-sections and it's, of course, the sterile field. Even the slightest thing, like the doctor's hands drop below like his belly button. You have to start over. Like it's yeah. ridiculous. Because it's so important. So imagining him oozing his just, infected just blood. Gag me now. No. Yeah. No. So dangerous. Oh, but it gets more dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Take it away, Liz. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about David Kwiatkowski just a little bit. So again, this piece of shit. He started his career as a radiologic technician. Um, I don't know if there's an abbreviate, a rad tech, maybe, I don't know. Um, in 2003, he started his career in his home state, which was Michigan. So from there, he went to Madonna University and earned a degree. Um, he decided that he was going to be a traveling technician, which honestly, I mean, he's an awful person, but is a smart move because you can make some great money doing oh, that, yeah. especially now. Also, it's helpful for other hospitals all around, and you can travel and see places, which mm -hmm. is cool. So he, between 2003 and 2012, worked through several different hiring agencies, which will then help assign you to different hospitals. That's what he was doing um, that span of the nine years. Not much is known about David prior to this. What we do know is that he was known as a liar, a chronic liar, and that he um, he constantly made up stories. And one that was mentioned quite frequently was that he told everyone he had cancer, which is not true. And he also claimed that he had a fiance once who died in a tragic car accident, which is also not true. So he was like just a piece of shit. Clearly narcissistic, yeah. attention-seeking. Attention whore. Quite literally. <laughs> you put it bluntly. As I often do. <laughs> and even his parents, obviously known better than anyone, said that, you know, he had anger problems, depression problems, and that he had alcohol and substance abuse problems as well. They did say that he had Crohn's disease, which was pretty awful for him. It's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty awful condition mm -hmm. to have. But he seemed to be treating that with fentanyl patches. Which is, it, it is something you can get prescribed by a doctor if you're in something that's very serious pain. Not super common because it is very strong and it can be abused very easily. Mm -hmm. Which is exactly what ended up happening <laughs> yeah. right here, right now. Guys, I'm going to be giving you a complete rundown from roughly 2003 to 2007, 8 of the path that David took as a traveling... He's changed positions a few times mm -hmm. so in between the years of 2003 and 2007 david was either fired by or had resigned for whatever reason from four michigan health facilities four okay nuts according to court documentation that was much later three of those terminations and or resignations were a result of investigations involving him and the unlawful use of controlled substances. In 2008 at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, there was an incident where David had been caught lifting his shirt to hide a fentanyl syringe in his scrubs. Yikes. 
He denied up and down stealing the medication. He ended up leaving. He's like, okay, you guys are accusing me of stealing a drug I didn't steal. I just found it. So I'm leaving. I quit. Mm. So he took it upon himself to quit before they could pursue any kind of investigation, any kind of penalty. So he didn't really get in trouble for that. It was just an incident that was observed and noted. So he quit. He was able to actually pretty quickly find work in another hospital without even really being questioned about why he left his last job because he left on his own. Right. So he could make up a reason like, oh, you know, just the commute or the working hours. Right. He could make up any kind of bullshit and he was a chronic compulsive liar. So he was good at it. So when he got a job at another hospital, Mm -hmm. which was his pattern, whenever red flags would start to be raised at his other job, they would either A, let him go, or B, he would peace out before anything really happened, and he'd be able to continue the pattern and work in other medical facilities. Right. So because of this, you know, being caught with the syringe in his pants, essentially, they searched his locker, too. They found an empty syringe with morphine traces in it, and then... His hiring agency, Maxim at the time, was notified of this, right? And they were like, oh shit, this guy, what are we going to do? So they drug tested him. Now here's the thing. Fentanyl disappears really quick from your system Mm -hmm. um, with urine. And so they did a urine test on David and it turned up negative for fentanyl. Because it goes so quickly that your kidneys clear it so quickly. If they had done a blood test, it would have shown up. Mm-hmm. But they only did a urine test. And they were like, all right, buddy, next hospital, you got it. This being said, they never reported David to the police or investigations. And there was no change of his license right. at all. So Maxim, just like you said, on to the next one. Yep. Let's do it. There was another instance in a hospital in Arizona. David was actually found unresponsive in a bathroom, and there was an empty fentanyl syringe floating in the toilet next to him. People run in, they're like, oh my God, are you okay, are you okay? They're more focused on seeing if David is okay. They kind of are like, oh, there's something floating in the toilet. Weird. David comes to the first thing he does. They're like, are you okay? Mm-hmm. Are you a diabetic? Do you need anything? Yeah. What can we do for you? Did you hit your head? He sits up and flushes the toilet. Mm. And the evidence goes floating away down the drain. Down the drain. Down the pipes. <laughs> oh, and this is like ridiculous. Mm-hmm. At this point, he's working with a different hiring agency called Springboard. It's like all of his past things it's easier to hide it when you switch agencies like yep. that. So it's very possible that all of his coworkers at this point where he was in Arizona had no idea that he was a drug user or whatever, that he had prior, several prior convictions, accusations, correctly accusations of him stealing drugs from his patients mm-hmm. and then replacing it with saline. Fentanyl and saline. Saline is something that, you know, it's called, it's isotonic. A lot, like if you've ever been in the hospital and you've gotten an IV, they'll flush it with saline. It's that thing that causes a weird taste in your mouth because mm-hmm. it's just, it's just like, it matches your blood type. Like it's normal and it's safe. Anyone can get saline. Um, so he was replacing the saline, which has no value, no pain control, no nothing. It's literally just like volume. Right. And he was replacing the fentanyl with saline. So, when David woke up from his fentanyl-induced stupor when he was found in the bathroom, they took him to the emergency room because, like, whoa, what's going on, man? And he had flushed the syringe. Mm -hmm. They drug-tested him, and they found cocaine and marijuana in his system. Now we know more that marijuana is not, like, a huge deal, but he did have cocaine in his system, which is significant. So, that's interesting. I'm surprised they didn't find fentanyl unless they just did a urine test you can detect cocaine and thc in urine so that's not surprising if it was a urine test homestever you and i katie and Mm -hmm. you listener know that his drug of choice was fentanyl and he clearly flushed it down the toilet how the fuck is he getting away with this shit 
Exactly. It's insane. And here's the thing. I mean, despite all these safety measures, he got around them. And he, after he was arrested, he was honest about it. You know, and he shared how he was doing it. Right. So you had touched on it a little bit earlier, Liz. How David was simultaneously going around getting high mm. and also infecting patients with hep C. Right was a little bit of a mystery at first. Right. Um, when they were digging into his background at Exeter Hospital, the Exeter police chief at the time was saying, you know, it's dark in the room, it's dark in the room that they're doing the procedures, yeah. maybe he's pocketing it, but how yeah. is he getting the used syringe back on the table? Like, how? there's a disconnect here, we're not sure. We know he's stealing the drugs and getting high. Mm -hmm. We don't know how he's replacing the syringe and exposing these patients. Right. So what he was doing was taking the syringes of fentanyl, shooting himself up with the fentanyl, yeah. and then he would go and refill the syringe with saline, mm -hmm. which, you know, if you are dehydrated, you go to the ER and they'll give you probably a bag of saline. Without traces of fentanyl in it. Or hep C. Yeah, or hep C, <laughs> yeah. That's true. So... Fentanyl and saline, they both look, it's like a clear liquid. Yeah. You know, you can't really tell the difference just by looking. Yeah. So when he was refilling the syringe with saline, he was replacing it mm -hmm. back on the table of supplies for the procedure before mm -hmm. the patient was even brought in. Yeah. So that syringe has been used by him. Right. Contaminated with hep C, placed on the table, and then the patient is injected with it. So now we have two, actually three major problems. Yeah. One, a med tech in the room that is participating actively in a medical procedure is high off his ass on fentanyl. Right. Two, that drug was diverted from the patient who needs pain management Absolutely. in order for their procedure. The patients after the fact that were interviewed said that those procedures were some of the most painful moments of their entire lives. They were suffering Absolutely. actively because hello, you don't just like, okay, we're going to take a wire and shove it up your groin right. up into your heart right. and poke around and make sure everything's great. Yeah. And you have to sit still and, and feel it. Oh my God. And the recovery after, like even if the patients were not conscious for the procedure itself, they were able to feel more of the after effects because they were not preventatively given pain medication. Absolutely. And now we have the third most obvious problem, which is the whole reason we're talking about this case, is that the patient was exposed to hepatitis C. Unbeknownst to them. Right. They did not sign up for that. No. Hepatitis C is a lifelong, you know, you can contract hep C and you can live a normal, long, fulfilling life. You just might have some problems. You might have to take medication. You might have to have additional screenings. That's if you know you have it. Right. And also, I don't really think the average person would be like, yeah, I think that's fine. You know, I went in for a routine procedure and I came out with hep C. But yeah, that, that's cool. No, like, my life's not changed at all. Yeah, it should be, that should be fine. That didn't alter the course of my life at all. My problem here is that Anytime you have blood, you have the potential for spreading bloodborne illness. Absolutely. That's why in a healthcare setting, whenever there's a possibility of contracting or touching blood or bodily fluids, we wear gloves. You know, it doesn't have to be a whole hazmat suit type thing, mm -hmm. but it does involve some precaution where if there's a spillage of blood on the floor, you have to clean it a certain way because of the potential for bloodborne pathogens. Exactly. My main problem here is that in 2010 mm. our friend david received his hepatitis c diagnosis right yep was he doing things to interfere with patients before that yes absolutely of course he was <laughs> he did not go to exeter hospital until 2011 mm -hmm. through 2012 and we know for a fact that patients at Exeter Hospital were testing positive for hep C as a result of David. Mm -hmm. So his diagnosis of hep C did not stop him from intentionally and knowingly yeah. infecting 
patients with hepatitis C. That is evil. Oh, so fucking evil. I understand that addiction is a disease. It's an illness. You will do everything in your power to get high. You will hurt the people around you. Mm-hmm. You throw your family out the window. You throw your friends out the window because you're so in the throes of addiction. We know this. Oh, yeah, of course. When you know in the back of your mind that you are, without a doubt, exposing, if not giving, mm-hmm. a patient hepatitis C that could kill them. Yeah. That could permanently disable them right that could shorten their lifespan people who are in cardiac cath labs aren't there because they're healthy thank you they have heart issues you and i katie wouldn't just go get a cardiac cath test right they don't do them for funsies no no it's not like a colonoscopy where it's routine Mm -hmm. it's something that you need to get fixed like you need help so he's you're bringing up such good points because He's knowingly infecting these patients. Mm -hmm. And these patients, he's aware, are sick already. So already their immune system is kind of down for the count. Right. Evil. And he's a healthcare worker. You know, you go into the field knowing that patients' lives are in your hands. Mm -hmm. And to directly fuck up a patient's life, all for the sake of getting high, that's crazy. Right. That's, I think evil is such a good word for that because it's diabolical. Right. And you could argue all day, oh, he was in the throes of addiction. Yes, of course he was or else he wouldn't be doing it in the first place. Right. It's still wrong. Right. It's still not right just because addiction is a disease and it drives you to do horrific, horrible things with no regard for others. Yeah. I think he had a little bit of an extra no regard for others because we know he's a chronic liar. We know he's a narcissist. He's not anger problems, right? Depression, right? Yeah. His whole time at Exeter Hospital, he was knowingly infecting patients with hepatitis C. Yeah, and you know, I talked to my dad a little bit about what it was like working with David. Obviously, he didn't work directly with him, but one of the areas that he usually cleaned was the cardiac cath lab. You know, and he was there plenty, and um, I've been there plenty of times uh, when I worked at the hospital. And, you know, he said that David was nice enough, but he seemed very manic and, like, talking very fast and pointing out random things and just being, like, very jittery and, Mm -hmm. like, you know, just, like, all over the place. Which you already described. People were noticing he was glassy-looking and, you know, just very erratic. And And that sounds like withdrawal symptoms to me. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Sweaty and Mm -hmm. frothy at the mouth, they said. Oh, wow. Not, like, full-on rabies, but, like, you know, like, like, dry and, like... Just, yeah. So he, but he said, you know, he was like, he was nice enough and, you know. (sighs) Of course he's nice enough because he's trying to fly under the radar like he's been doing his entire career. Exactly. That's crazy. Yeah. So because David moved around so much, he had such an extensive work and travel history. Mm -hmm. Um, He actually worked in 18 hospitals in seven different states over the course of just nine years. That's a lot. So once they find out, okay, it's this guy that has been infecting people with hep C, Mm -hmm. we need to figure out every single patient he's been in contact with and test them because they've all been exposed to hepatitis C from him. Yeah. 6,000 people were under his care over the course of his career as a med tech. Yeah. He exposed 6,000 people to hep C. 46 of them, at least, Hmm. have been infected with his strain, including a 94-year-old woman who passed away as a direct result. That is murder. Yep. That was um, when he was on placement in Kansas. Um, He ended up exposing her, and like you said, Katie, she died as a result. Mm -hmm. Straight murder. The majority of the patients that he successfully infected were in New Hampshire. Yes. 32 of them in total. Every single one of those patients he infected knowing that he was positive for hep C. Yeah. Seven of them were in Maryland. Six were in Kansas, including the 94-year-old woman that passed away. Mm -hmm. One in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. This is still regarded as the largest hepatitis C outbreak in the history of the United States. All from one person. One person. That is insane. Now, 
like we were talking about at the beginning, Katie, they kind of realized after three or four patients got diagnosed with hep C, they traced it all back and eventually ended on David. Mm -hmm. He knew that they were onto him. They could tell, like he knew. So in July of 2012, so like two months after they realized like, oh my God, we have patients who are all these common denominators and they have hep C now. And none of them were like drug users. These were like elderly women and men who were retired and living like normal, boring lives, right? So it's like, what they obviously aren't going out and doing IV drugs. Like it's process of elimination here. Exactly. So he, David knew, and he like was getting an inkling of suspicion. So like I said, July 2012, David actually was found and traced to um, a hotel in Marlboro, Massachusetts. And um, when they got there, it was obvious that he had tried to hurt himself, if not kill himself. So you might be thinking, well, what if he just was strung out on drugs and that's just how he was doing it? Not an intentional overdose. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> so um, the hotel room, six prescription drugs, alcohol. He had taken all of them. It was very obvious he was drunk. He was slurring his words and he was smell smelled of alcohol. Mm -hmm. When you're drinking so much alcohol, it like leaks out of your pores. It's not just a breath thing. You can like it embodies you. Oh, you walk in the room. Oh, it's awful. They're sweating out pure alcohol. <laughs> Literally. Oh. <laughs> um, so that's not the whole reason why it's obvious. It's obvious because that he was trying to kill himself because he left a note. He said in the note, please call Carrie, which was his girlfriend at the time. She also worked at Exeter Hospital. And let her know I passed away. Tell her I couldn't handle the stress anymore. So clearly he was intending to die. Mm-hmm. Lucky for him, though, they got him just in time. They saved his life. So they brought him to the hospital, and he was treated, and he was like, you know, he really needed some treatment. And um, and six days later, while still in the hospital, they arrested him. After he got caught, David told an investigator, quote, I'm going to kill a lot of people out of this. Yeah. That's so spooky. So. He knows. He knows that people are going to die as a result of him. He knew the whole time. Mm -hmm. He had to have known. He knew he had hep C. For at least a year, he got that diagnosis and was infecting people. For sure. And even before he got the diagnosis, yeah. hello, you're making patients use a needle that's been in your arm? Disgusting. That's foul. Yeah, absolutely foul. Oh, God. And to think it happened to people who just were going about their day. Yeah. Awful. It's terrible. Luckily, though, I'm so relieved to say that they arrested him, right? And then he was brought to trial fairly quickly, actually, yeah. um, within the next year or so. Roughly November, of December of 2013 is when they brought him to trial. And... Um, this was just what we're talking about right now is just for New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. um, because like we said, they had connected him to those infections and the cardiac cath lab and him being assigned to their case and all that. Um, so this was just for New Hampshire. Um, he pled guilty to seven counts of tampering with a consumer product and seven counts of obtaining controlled substances by fraud. Um, and of course, I think you already touched on it, but one of the things that really stuck out to me is that he completely gypped his patients of pain control. And the uh, prosecuting attorney brought that up. And I think that's a really powerful yeah. statement because it's absolutely true. That is evil before you even take into account that these patients are being exposed to hep C. Oh, absolutely. You are forcing them. Without their consent, without their knowledge, they're waking up from the surgery in excruciating pain. Yeah. And their nurses and doctors are like, you should not be in pain. Like, yeah. I don't understand why you're in this much pain. Yeah. I can't give you more fentanyl. You've already had your... Right. Mm -hmm. You're maxed out on your pain control. Sorry, yeah. you just got to tough it out. You have to wait four hours or whatever right. for the next... Yeah, absolutely. It's messed up. And then we could get into the pathophysiology if we want to get all nursey and nerdy and all that. <laughs> when you are in excruciating pain 
it puts your body in in stress. So much stress. And when your body is under stress, it makes you heal slower. The yeah. healing process takes longer, which is why when you're healing from a surgery, a procedure, an operation, you get sent home with a pretty solid pain regimen. Absolutely. And if anybody has ever had surgery or any kind of procedure, you've probably been told, take your Tylenol or take your ibuprofen or whatever it is that you're prescribed ahead of time yeah. to get ahead of the pain. Right. Because your body cannot heal properly if you are in severe pain. And so these patients were just put through hell. Uh, yeah, most definitely. It's unfair. Everything about this is yeah. unfair to them. And you read off the list of states where he infected, how many he did. He was just an awful, selfish human being. It's selfish. So the fact that he pled guilty in the trial is reassuring and like, good. Now he knows. Now he's admitting to it. He should have been admitting to it, knowing that he was doing an awful thing long before this. He claimed, apparently, that nobody ever helped him obtain and divert the drugs when he was in Exeter. Um, he did give some tips and tricks of how he'd done it so long, and that included stealing vials, fishing them out of the trash, um, which is, they should be in Sharps containers. Yeah, first of all, <laughs> let's... <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, a sharp container is when you use a needle and you just... It's like a very... It's a puncture-proof box. And so you put it in there and then there's only certain people who can access it, yeah. empty it out in a safe place. Um, I know I personally put my vials in there. Like, if I'm giving a patient, like, I don't, anything IV besides, like, saline, yeah. I pop it... I Even saline, actually. I pop it in the, mm -hmm. the sharps. It's safe that way because somebody could take that syringe that had saline in it and take it out of the trash and use it for, you know, fentanyl or heroin. Or let's say a poor housekeeper is taking out the trash and a needle is poking through the trash mm -hmm. bag and they get stuck. Absolutely. They have no idea where that needle came from. It's just, it's, it's for safety. So the fact that that was an error that was made that allowed him to obtain needles in that way that they yeah. weren't safely disposed of that's that really just fuels the whole problem it's yeah. crazy um because he decided to plead guilty he was actually offered a very light sentence in comparison to what he would have been charged with so he had the potential of serving 96 years in jail which would be beyond his lifetime happily but because he pled guilty he only got sentenced to 38 years in jail that's ridiculous he killed someone right and he was what 35 at the time of his sentencing yeah, 34 35 relatively young mm-hmm yeah in 2014 as a direct response to this piece of shit <laughs> absolutely yeah the state of new hampshire passed legislation to create the first board of registration for medical technicians across the country this board would allow other state hospitals and medical facilities in general to communicate amongst each other about employee disciplinary records so that if someone got in trouble at one facility and they're like, you're lying, I quit, I'm going to go work somewhere else, they couldn't just easily wind up in a different facility. They would have to look into them and they would have access to those disciplinary records, even if police reports were not made. Yes. Um, this way, if a med tech is a sketchy asshole, such as our friend David, sure. they can't just jump around and keep working and yeah. keep jeopardizing patients. Yeah. You could catch them and you could prevent these things from happening. And I'm shocked that it took until 2014 right. to get this done. So good job, New Hampshire, for getting on this. Good job when they made it. Right. Because now there's actually um, trying to appeal that. The state of New Hampshire is trying to get rid of that registry. I as don't of know like why. June, I think. Yeah, I don't know why they do that. Uh, because dumb? <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. It's a very good point. That's right. a, it's such a good way to screen and prevent these things from happening. And it did prevent this thing, like these things from happening after the fact. For sure. It didn't happen again. And now they're like, mm, we should get rid of that. Not enough Hep C. 
Right. Like, <laughs> what else would they, like, why else would they? Right. Our epidemiologists are bored. Let's give them more cases of hep C to, come on. I know, seriously. It blows my mind. It blows my mind. And poor, poor Davey, he, um, you know, he's in jail, right? <laughs> and uh, COVID-19 is a real thing, guys. And, you know, when he was in jail, David was scared. <laughs> and um, he was so nervous because he was sick. He had hep C, remember? <laughs> and Crohn's disease, remember that too? So in December of 2020, this asshole had the audacity to file a motion for compassionate release because he was a high risk for catching COVID. <laughs> he was in jail in Florida at this point, mm -hmm. and the, there had been um, less than 15% of the population in his prison infected at that point. I'm not sure if now. And when he filed the motion, nobody had COVID. So the judge was like, wait, um, what? Hello? <laughs> You've barely been in a timeout. Like, it's not... <laughs> He had served seven years, right. not even, seven years of his 39-year sentence. Mm. He wanted to be released from prison to home confinement. Mm. I don't think so. Nice try. The kicker for me is that the judge who denied his motion was also the same judge at his sentencing hearing <laughs> in 2013. Beautiful. And the same judge said that this sentencing hearing was the most emotionally charged he'd ever witnessed in his 25 years of working as a prosecutor. Yeah. He said it was just a line out the door of patient after patient after patient that this guy ruined. Yeah. He ruined their lives. And these patients came up and took the stand yeah. and addressed David and said, you destroyed my life. Right. Patients who are terrified that they, if they have children, they're going to pass hep C to their kid. Yeah. Patients who, you know, are terrified of what the rest of their lives are going to look like, mm -hmm. that have to go on medication because of this, that have to have lab work and screenings and an additional medical care. Right. They're so prone now to infection mm -hmm. and getting sicker from a regular flu, cold, things. Mm -hmm. It's just more dramatic and dangerous. And you have to take precautions in your own home like yeah. let's say that you are flossing your teeth and your gums are bleeding yeah and your spouse is waiting outside to use the bathroom and there's blood all over the place or you cut yourself with a razor while shaving and there's yeah. blood all over the place your blood has hep c you have hep c right you have to take precautions in your home and in your everyday lives mm -hmm. let's say a cat scratches you and you're yeah. bleeding and then your kid goes to grab like yeah so many things in your everyday life you have to do differently because of this exposure that they didn't ask for, they didn't deserve, and they didn't even find out in a timely manner. That's horrible. To go years of your life not knowing you have hep C. I know. And then to find out, oh yeah, eight years ago when you had this right. procedure, right. the med tech standing in the corner bleeding through his scrubs because he has abscesses, from abusing the fentanyl that you should have received. Yes. Remember that painful procedure that has probably, you know, scarred you for the rest of your life and you have medical PTSD from? Total PTSD. Yeah, remember that? Yeah, you also got hep C from that too, just letting you know. That's just awful. In so, prison he sits. Yeah. The judge literally said, um, and I quote, I think sentencing relief this early in the sentence under these circumstances would actually undermine respect for the law in the community and undermine justice for the victims. And like we just, just said, have lifelong illness because of him. Mm -hmm. But poor David, he has a, oh, a bellyache. He wants to, he, oh, he wants to go home to mama and... His tummy hurts. His tummy hurts, and he, he's got abscesses <laughs> to pick at, and yeah. So saying he has cancer, that's just come on that now. pisses me off too. Like, don't cry wolf, because uh, you look like a sheep. <laughs> so guys, thank you for listening. This yeah. is definitely one of those cases that's just like, it blows your mind because how he got away with it for so long mm -hmm. and it wasn't even like the 80s it was 10 years ago not even right some of it 
So guys, if you want to tell us your thoughts and feelings about this case, you can come to us on our Instagram and Twitter, which is True Crime Any. All lowercase. And you can go to our email and shoot us a little message about what you think and your theories or literally anything about this case or anything at all. That is uh, truecrimeny at gmail.com. You could also head over to our website, truecrimene.com, and you could use our handy-dandy submission tool to do all of the same things that Liz just told you to do on our email. Yes. If you prefer to do them on our website, you can do that. And a fun fact about our handy-dandy submission tool on our website, you can be anonymous if you so choose. Send us cases you'd like for us to cover, your thoughts on this one or other cases we've done. We haven't mentioned it in a while, but if you keep scrolling past our handy-dandy submission tool, we have a little link to our Buy Us a Coffee page. Um, It's pretty recent, but yeah, if you guys want to buy us a coffee, say a little thank you. We always give shout-outs. Yeah. And while I'm sitting here thinking of it, shout-out to my mother, who randomly sent us three coffees, which was very nice. That was so nice. Thanks, Liz's mom. Yeah. Thanks, Pam. (laughs) Um, So if that could be you guys getting a shout-out, right? If you went to buy us a coffee. We're just saying. We appreciate you guys so much. We'd appreciate if you maybe bought us a coffee. That'd be so sweet. But mainly and most importantly, we appreciate you for listening. Yes, absolutely. And uh, before we go, just a quick reminder. If you are a Spotify person, you can go right onto the page of our podcast and hit a star review. Five usually works. Um, And then if you're like me and you listen to podcasts on Apple Podcasts, head on over to our page, scroll down a little bit. You know, there's going to be stars. Five is good. And then you can also leave a written review, which is pretty neat. And we love reading them. Especially if they're nice. Especially (laughs) if they're nice. So um, with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you.